0: Welcome to Veterans in Academics. This podcast highlights people and topics where the veteran experience and academia overlap. Join your host, Dr. Luke McCleese, in this groundbreaking content. Each week, we explore new stories, topics for you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Veterans and Academics. I'm your host, Dr. Luke McLeese, and today we have a special guest, Mr. John Ellis. Mr. John, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, sir? Absolutely,
1: and thanks thanks so much for having me. Really happy to be here and a big fan. I've listened to a number of episodes, I really enjoyed it. Um, So yeah, about me, uh, you know, first, uh, the foremost thing, I would say um, I'm a writer. Um, you had a writer, a uh, creative writer specifically, uh, a number of episodes ago, which I, I really enjoyed that episode listening, uh, listening to that one. He had an MFA. I, too, have an MFA. It's kind of the quintessential writer's degree. And um, yeah, aspiring writer attempting to publish my first book soon.
0: Very exciting. Very, very exciting. And a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. It is. Awesome, John. Okay. So, um John, now for the listeners, uh let me let me cue them in on a few things. So, you are currently serving in the army, correct, in the army reserves. That is correct. Army reserve. Okay, and um, you also have a aside from being an MFA, uh, you've also worked with a nonprofit, which I hope you talk about here in a little bit. And uh, then also, you are an editor, one of the co-editors for the Journal of Veterans Studies. So I'm I'm looking forward to talk to you about all these things, and with all these things combined, with all these hats that you're wearing on top of writing a book, uh, John, can you tell me in in your opinion what are military connected people doing well in the realm of higher education sir
1: yeah so great question i'm i I guess i can speak from my anecdotal evidence you know so in in my time my most recent time in higher education that was when i was getting my mfa back in 2015 through 2017 um, I, I was a teaching fellow at my university, and uh, so I had students at that point. I was a, a lecturer, I guess classified as a lecturer, uh, uh, as I went through my MFA. Um, but I had the distinct pleasure of uh, kind of per- being with the veteran community on campus. Uh, part, of, part of that was because I deliberately connected with it. They had a veteran group that I became a part of um we were able to do some really cool things like we sat sat in with the president of the university we talked with him it was kind of an exclusive uh meeting that the veterans and and the service members of the campus had um but larger than that i would say within my role as a teaching fellow i also was teaching veterans who had uh they were coming back they were yellow ribbon um recipients or users like i was um, and they had tuition assistance and the GI Bill. Um, the, the cool thing about that, I would say, is that there were a number of people who were really connecting with, I, I guess, the broader community by, just by virtue of getting back into their studies, by virtue of getting uh, an education, either for the first time, or in some cases they were coming back for another degree. And in, in that, everybody has a different story. That's what I discovered. Um, that we, that, you know, off the top of my head, the the guy that I remember the most, um, he would always show up. He had a his dog with him, and the part of this was um, it was like like a canine therapy. I forgot the name of the nonprofit, but um, but he had it. He had worked through this nonprofit to um, have a a companion dog with him, and uh, it was one of those things. You know, you don't you don't pet it. Uh, it's just it's uh, he has it with him and uh, on a leash and uh, but but it was like a therapeutic modality and uh, what I really loved was that 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 group so so part of it is that I have a, a kind of a closed group you could say from which to you know recount my anecdotal evidence but all of the veterans that I met uh, in this university setting, uh, including that gentleman, they were deliberately. Uh, actively and conscientiously pursuing a connection with the broader community um, that that is the, uh, I, I guess it's kind of a simplistic statement but it's a really important thing because I know they're all coming from different backgrounds, different um, service backgrounds Some of them had just come out some of them had been in a number of years some of them it was like me like they were serving the on the Army Reserve and they were still in and uh, but all of them were making an active, uh, an active uh, effort to participate, I guess. Now, I only bring that up because, you know, I I have met a number of veterans where it was a, an immediate, when they they were departing their service, there was kind of a lull, I don't know, you might say something like a gap year, you know, a big, we use that term when we're headed off between high school and college, we kind of take a break and sometimes people travel, sometimes people just need a break to work or something like that. And there's an insinuation that there's, I don't know, there's there's something in that that's of value. Um, And I think that can be true for veterans as well. Uh, Not everybody progresses immediately from their service into higher education or or, uh, what have you, whatever, you know, practical thing that they're going to do. But I I saw that there was something that was a unifying factor between all these veterans, all these service members, where they were really pursuing something to, to stay active in their lives now that they were, were leading the veteran community, the military, uh, and they were putting that behind them. They wanted to replace it with something that was equally conscientious and something that would utilize their skills and talents. And... Um, uh, what I saw was people who were genu- generally happy and they were, uh, I would say they were, they, they understood the value of that kind of immediate transition. Now, again, I'm, I'm kind of painting it with broad strokes and I don't mean to do that, but I definitely see that there was a value for them in going immediately into, um, you know, the undergrad experience or the graduate experience. And, um, and really embracing the campus life. And, uh, and a number of them, I, I'd say all of them were successful and, and many of them were hugely successful. And you know, they're part of multiple clubs and organizations. Uh, they're doing very well in their studies, getting high GPAs. And, uh, and they were definitely a delight for me to have uh, as students when I was teaching.
0: And that's amazing, that's, that's great. And you know, it's, it's something you see Time and time again, while well, you're right, not everybody can be generalized, you know, and they're definitely those veterans who get out of the service and they don't want to be identified as being in the military or the reservists who are like, hey, it's during the week. I'm not playing that game right now. However, large numbers, and I hear this from person after person on campus that tell me exactly what you've just said, you know, and, and it's something I've witnessed as well, that there is this kind of unspoken thing that happens. And that's my scholastic word for thing. Um, and it's just like people find each other, right? It doesn't matter what branch of service they were in. It doesn't matter what they're currently studying in college. Um, uh, but they find each other and they find these ways to bond and to engage in, you know, like the veteran military connected community, but often in the larger school community and often, in beyond you know the local or state community as well so it's really really interesting to hear you say that that's one of the things that you notice because it, it's starting to be a theme you know and uh and it's very interesting because it's just happening on its own now let me ask you the flip side to that john so if that is is the positive thing what is something that um, the military connected population in higher education could improve
1: yeah, and that's a good question. Um, I probably have less of a comprehensive en- answer for that because I ha- I saw so many successful veterans, and so again, these are kind of like enclosed or closed groups. And um, you know, uh, I my exposure to the campus was specifically into those groups, and uh, but I do have a number of friends who are veterans, and those veteran friends that I have who did connect to the to to campus and uh, inevitably didn't finish and um, or got caught up in life things, um, maybe just kind of put it by the wayside. Um, I, I, I feel like there's something about, um, there's something where there's, a, uh, there's an, maybe a difficulty in making a connection between the military community and all those specific characteristics and then the campus community. Um, the campus community is obviously very different. You know, when you're looking at a stu- student demographic, you're looking at um, the general culture on a campus. And then from the culture that people come from when they're serving, you know, they're coming from an army base or an air force base and uh, or a deployment overseas, these are very different things. These are the, the, the characteristics, the ethos that makes up these these, uh, cultural groups, it's different. Um, I think that, uh, one thing that it's here's, here's kind of a simple thing, but I want to, I want to make sure that I answer your I give you an answer that's concrete. I think that there can be a bureaucratic difficulty, um, when connecting with the, um, the, I don't know, the school, like using one's benefits, getting tapped into school. Um, there It's obviously everything on the military side. I can speak for the Army Reserve, at least. Everything in terms of using like a student loan repayment program, using the tu- tuition assistance, using one's GI bill. Sometimes these things can be a slog. And I think that it takes, it takes some conscientiousness to really commit to getting through and using those things. Um, it's unfortunate, I think the percentage of veterans who actually go through and they use their benefits and um put them to good use you know get get a degree let's say make it all the way through every year and and get a degree i know the the last statistic that i read that percentage was extremely small compared to the number of people who actually have access to those benefits now there are probably greater reasons there's a large number of reasons for that um but i think uh you know connecting first of all the bureaucratic nightmare that can be you know, the, something for, for people to get through. That That's a difficulty. It doesn't necessarily, I, I think, reflect on the veterans who are attempting to use their benefits. But yeah, that, that's the kind of the immediate thing that comes to my mind.
0: Yeah. And you know what? I think that's interesting that you highlight that because when it comes to using benefits specifically, sometimes on campuses, there is a, a two-way problem. You know, it's like... Uh, Campus is is kind of like okay you've got to you've got to go out there and apply for your benefits and you just need to know what office it's located at right is it financial services is it a military affairs office you know every campus is different and uh, the service member or former service member is used to uh, a process that's broken down so simplistically you know it's like you line up and if one person's doing it you all do it right. And then on the other side of the coin, uh, people on campus don't understand why things take so slow with the federal government. (laughs) You know, it's it's still like a mystery. And they're like, okay, we filed all this paperwork and we did all these things and someone still doesn't have their benefits and it's been months, how could the government do this? You know, when in reality, it, the government's like, okay, we've got your benefits, you'll be next in line of, you know, how many of a thousand, there you go. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate you bringing that up. That, yeah, I mean, that, that is a great point. That is a great point. And also, I, I
1: just want to say, because you're right, like, there are supposed to be, uh, this is a particular facet of what you just brought up, There are supposed to be people on each campus, like you said, I don't know, a Veterans Affairs representative or whatever they're called who can speak into the process for using these benefits. And uh, I know with my personal experience at my last university, it was a uh, an abysmal experience with the first representative. I think that person had just been given, arbitrarily assigned the position and didn't know anything about it. And um, so yeah, so if you run into confounds like that, I can see that being a, uh, that can stymie people's attempts to really get connected to the to, to their benefits and get connected to the
0: campus at large. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and a few of those small things really could snowball, you know, in, a, in a, a very negative impression that, you know, just sticks with someone sometimes. So okay, so John, so let's talk about you, my friend, uh, Army Reservist. What what led you, what was, what was your motivation for joining the army reserves and what do you do in the reserves and give us a a timeline about how long you've been uh, doing your job or or jobs.
1: Yeah. Thank you for asking that. That's, this is always, I'm always entertained. I I entertain myself, I guess, by, by answering this question, because I was one of those dudes who I was a, a bit older. I was, I was actually a lot older by army standards. It was like the late 20s. And um, I, I, it's one of those things where you enter corporate America and you realize, hey, you know what, I, I just want to do something more or do something else. And uh, so what I didn't in, entirely enjoy was the process of, well, I'll, I'll start it like this. I, I knew that I needed some kind of existential engagement beyond corporate America. And I know I'm not alone in that. I met a number of dudes who were about my age, kind of late twenties, and were looking for something a bit more engaging. And um, and so they they you know they end up they, they end up getting into service. And I and again, I have immense respect for people getting seventeen and eighteen. Like I did this in my, my, I think right when I turned 30 was when i my enlistment happened. So, you know, from, from the standpoint of the army, like I'm, I'm basically like an animated cadaver, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so done, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but again, I found there was a small demographic of guys who were my age when I was going into the depth, the delayed entry program, they were the same age and they were looking for the same thing. They had reasonably successful careers and whatever they were doing but they wanted something else. So I guess you could say it was like an existential longing. You want to do something that really presses you, that, that gives you new experiences. I, I, part of me, I, I hate to put it that way to make it sound like I'm, I, like I'm taking it less seriously than it is. I'm, I'm taking it very seriously. But a lot of guys get into it because they're really committed, like, hey, I want to serve my country. And in some senses, that's part of that. But in other senses, it's entirely selfish because you want something more from life you just do and the military is like the last bastion of uh i don't know that warrior ethos and and the um adventure that you can get in the western world the only the only real kind of like i don't know like machismo and uh, machismo and an adventure that you can get so um you know you want to challenge yourself and uh, so that that was majorly why i got into it and i, I you know, when I'm getting into the, if I talk about getting into the army reserve, part of that was just, it was like, uh, I almost saw it as an avocation, like, Hey, I'm adding this to my life as something else that I can do. And on the other side, it's an existential thrill for me to do it. Uh, I had an uncle in the 82nd. I knew that I wanted to go, um, jump out of planes,
0: right. jump out of helicopters if I could. Uh, and I ended up doing both those things. Wow. Wow. Okay. Very interesting. And you know, okay, so there is a line and I'm going to paraphrase it heavily, but there is a line in uh, Billy Lynn's halftime march, long halftime march. And uh, the line is something to the tune of, you know, Americans have to join the military and go overseas to grow up, you know? And I think, I think for a lot of, a lot of people, that's the view is, Like, like you're mentioning, there is a sense of adventure that you just can't have in the civilian world on your own. You know, there, there aren't many billionaires that can go around and hunt stuff like your Teddy Roosevelt or something all around (laughs) the globe. You've got to, you got to fund your, your fun somehow, right? (laughs)
1: 100%. Yeah. It's a hundred percent that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's that existential thrill. It's the fun.
1: It's the, uh. It's the testing too. It's the challenge that you really, you know, maybe you're challenged at your job, but that's a completely different kind of testing.
0: Right. And I think we have, and, and thankfully we have created a, a society that is very automated and very comfortable. But I think sometimes there are certain parts of the population that say, okay, there are some aspects of life that maybe are too easy and these things make it too mundane, right? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We're very blessed to have a very comfortable
1: and um, comfortable existence in the Western world in general. And I'm very thankful for that. But yeah, you're, it's, uh, it leaves something, sometimes it leaves something deep in your soul, something to be desired, something that's ineffable, you know, inescribable. And, uh, and then you, you're left wanting.
0: Absolutely. So tell us now, what is your, your job or what have you done? What are you currently doing in the army reserves?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I took my, my ASVAB and, uh, you probably have everybody, everybody says this or where I've ever been like, Oh, I scored so high and I could do anything I want. <laughs> it's always, I always hear that, you know? And so, um, so I'm just going to, re- I'll say the same thing. You know, I, I, I did well, I scored well, but I knew that I really wanted, because I was looking for that existential thrill. I wanted to get into something where, um, where I'd be physically rigorous. And so in the Army Reserve, what seemed to be the most physically rigorous and infantry-like was uh, becoming a combat engineer. And um, so I became a 12 Bravo, Uh, went to Fort Leonard Wood in the winter, and uh, it was surely the exact challenge that I was looking for. It was uh, probably the most cold that I've ever been in my life. Uh, I I know that I I mean, I've, I've hiked the Appalachian Trail to, to um, in certain portions, and I've been very cold when I've been camping out on the AT, but this was, like, a different kind of, like, torturous cold, like I've never experienced. And um, when I got out, I was so thankful to leave Fort Lost in the Woods, as it's called. It was just horrific. The 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 um, I I didn't think you, you could be that uncomfortable and being cold, but but yeah, so that was part of it. And uh, so I immediately jumped into a sapper company. That's uh, the, you know, it's qualification sapper qualification or common engineer company, and it, it indeed was exactly what I thought it would be. It was uh, pretty much as close as you could get to the infantry, uh, even in an army reserve unit. And um, you had a lot of these uh, battle hardened Iraq and Afghanistan uh veterans who were leading it so a lot of what we ended up doing was uh learning how to patrol properly um we of course had our demo days you know doing a lot of demolitions um you know blowing up the doors and stuff like that uh we had a repel days. so for whatever reason that's in their metal their mission essential task list they do a lot of repelling and uh that was part of training and then um you know, aerosol, going to aerosol course was part of their metal too. So, um, so a lot of, uh, a lot of fun and engaging activities to say the least.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, often people will ask me like, what, what was your favorite part about the Marine Corps? And I go through all these things. And then sometimes I'll mention some things that aren't my favorite. Uh, fast roping is number one on my not favorite list. everybody's rebuttal is oh it looks so cool like yeah no not for me (laughs) it does look cool though (laughs) oh yeah it does for someone else so i always grabbed the rope and closed my eyes and was just like oh my gosh just make it just make it this next (laughs) yeah for sure so very good, sir. Very good. Um, so tell us, since you're still, you're still in the Army Reserves, yet you, uh, you know, you've, you've been through your MFA and part of that you were uh, instructing classes. So how is some of your time, you know, in what you're doing in the Army Reserves, kind of informing your approach to your writing, to academics and into the classroom? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Great question. So, um, the big thing was as soon as I got to that initial army reserve, unit, you know, I was immediately thrust in this community of, um, you know, immensely talented and immensely multifaceted veterans. And, uh, like I said, Iraq and Afghanistan hardened, um, NCOs who were running our platoons and, uh, and uh, you know, just a kind of endeavoring, endeavoring guys, uh, both on the inside and on the outside, both in their military careers and their civilian careers. And I actually got connected to, um, to immediately to my platoon, my platoon sergeants. Nonprofit endeavor. So I happened to run into this this guy who, um, or he he wasn't my platoon sergeant at the time. He later became my platoon sergeant, but he was kind of my friend first. Um, so I made friends with him. I found out he was doing this nonprofit in the Bay Area. This was in San Francisco. My unit was in Concord, California, just okay. just kind of north north of the San Francisco uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area but um, he was doing this nonprofit called Warriors Always ready that served that was veteran o- owned and operated and serving with the intention of serving uh, veterans and specifically reservists and national Guardsmen so it was kind of a unique uh, a unique offering he was trying to get the, uh, the additional funding that could sometimes be beneficial for guard and reserve units as well as doing things like scholarships, um getting reimbursements for uh the, I don't know that unit things, things that units wouldn't uh, the reserve units wouldn't typically be able to to uh, to 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 have readily. So so I I kind of got connected to the community, the vet the deeper veteran community, not just through being at my unit anew, but also being a part of this nonprofit because there are a number of other veterans from my unit who were also part of it. We we're all making up the staff and the board. And uh, I got to be on the inside you know i don't think i would have been on the inside in the same way had i not become a part of this nonprofit
0: oh interesting interesting so you made a connection in the guard right for the nonprofit you you start working with the nonprofit however the nonprofit also then ended up benefiting you back in the reserves that's really it interesting did.
1: Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. i be, I was an editor doing a lot of stuff with, uh, fundraising and, uh, but in that work, in my, in my work and doing things that I, I, you know, kind of just enjoy doing, I would have been doing on my civil civilian career on the side. Anyway, uh, I really, uh, enjoyed enjoy the deeper connections that I made the relationships, the rapports that I built with the, uh, the veterans who are also part of that staff.
0: Very cool. And then the type of writing, were you were you helping with grants? Were you helping with kind of like structural content type stuff?
1: Yeah, yeah. You hit the, hit the nail on the head. I was ha- helping up grants. I was also writing business letters. There were a number of uh, business endeavors that the nonprofit was attempting to make with uh, other veteran-owned companies. And so uh, a lot of the correspondence, I was authoring the correspondence. I was writing articles that would go on social media uh, and then on the website uh blog, so blog posts, uh things as simple as like workouts all the way to writing historical articles about the, you know, some kind of major battle or something. And uh so a lot of that was uh, you know, authoring things from scratch. And then other things I was uh given some kind of like a letter template and I was I was editing that or authoring it. And um so a lot of stuff that I do now um now with a, a different nonprofit and, or a different organization. And uh, But I really got started in that, in that initial nonprofit in the Bay Area and really enjoyed it. And again, made these deeper relationships with the veteran community that I don't think would have existed had I not become a part of that organization.
0: Oh, that's so awesome. That's so awesome. And it's so awesome that you got such a rich experience from that. And, you know, it sounds like at least initially, it was kind of by chance, right? But then it became something you got very involved in. Exactly, exactly right. I love that. And so now let's talk about, since since we're talking about writing, uh, let's talk about and editing. And, all you know, it sounds like you've got a variety of things. What about your work with the Journal of Veterans Studies?
1: Yeah, I was connected. So it just happened to be when I was uh, doing my fellowship at my university. This was at St. Mary's College of California in uh, Moraga. And again, in the Bay Area. So um, I, the director of the writing center for which I was working. And when I was doing my fellowship, I was teaching these courses there and then also teaching creative writing courses outside of the, the, um, the uh, writing center. She actually mentioned she she I remember she her telling me she goes oh you know what there's actually a, an academic journal that's for veterans so you might want to check it out so I really owe it to her she she was actually a fantastic influence on my life in general this director and professor uh, Teresa Kramer so I uh, I really really uh, benefited from her tutelage and then she brought the journal to my attention, um, I later contacted the journal's editor-in-chief, Mariana Grohowski, and said, hey, I, I'd love to be a part of this, very much in kind of the same way that I, when I first found out about the other organization, Warriors Always Ready, I kind of, I wanted to take the initiative and reach out to the, to the person in charge and say, hey, I, you know, maybe I can offer my services, and, and this will be a blessing to me, too. And so, uh, sure enough, Mariana and I have uh, had a great um, I, I think about five years or six years now that we've known each other and uh, work together. And now with the JVS uh, steadily growing in uh, popularity, um, it's been a cool thing for me to part of, to be a part of a, a variety of projects um, with Mariana and with JVS. And uh, I do a lot of uh, layout work for the articles that come through JBS and that are eventually published. I have written, uh, I wrote like a, uh, uh, book review for, for at, at one point. So I'm, I'm kind of doing like odds and ends, but the main thing is I really believe, you know, first of all, in the power of academic journals. You know, I, I was reading academic journals before I came to JVS, but uh, any academic journal, these have a very specific place, I think, in our society, because you have people concentrated, you know, on a given field, working together, collaborating, um, you know, kind of, cross-cultivating with their research and uh, and focused on not just problems, not specific problems per se, but uh, on this field and advancing studies in it. And so I really believe in scholarly journals for one, but for two, there's this, this is a nascent field it's burgeoning and uh, so I'm really happy with what veteran studies is for anybody out there listening if they haven't heard of veteran studies it is a burgeoning field it's kind of made up of a number of humanities and social sciences typically that's kind of what it's been in the past but now um, JVS is and veteran studies in general is becoming its own thing and um, we have the veterans and society conference coming up very soon so it's kind of moving as its own force in the world as it, as it will.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you, you mentioned the field as a whole, because what's interesting in the field and with the journal, with this particular journal, Journal of Veteran Studies, is you can see the growth year by year. And I I hate to use the word exponential out of context, but so this is, I'll use it in context. I mean, this is truly, Uh, It just grows and it grows and it grows and it grows and it grows, you know, the people that are drawn to it, that publish in it, um, same thing with the field, you know, if one school pops up, then two schools pop up, then three or four schools pop up, offering minors certificates, there now is a veteran studies major out there. You know, there's a couple people talking about uh, graduate programs on the horizon. So it's just really exciting, and it's really exciting the, t- the type of uh, feedback that you get from people kind of outside of the veteran studies realm. Uh, either they're just floored that it exists and they didn't know it before, or they're amazed at the type of growth that something with such an interdisciplinary Reach has been able to to grow so fast, but yeah, I also think yeah that's I great, completely you know? agree. That's oh
1: yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent.
0: And so yeah. yeah, I'm excited about it. Yeah, it's very very cool. Now, do you see yourself uh maybe writing in in kind of a I don't want to say veteran like you would have to since you do this be in veteran studies but something kind of that is drawn from your mil- time in the military or maybe uh you know what you have learned from the veterans that you're around in the nonprofit. Do you see your writing every- yeah i
1: I'm so glad you asked that because um, that's kind of like the culminating feature of my uh, my life with veterans, and being immersed in this this world of veterans. Um, I, you know, I'm currently working on a work. Uh, I'm I'm writing the book proposal now. I'm attempting to get it published. Uh, I, I then um, I recently applied for a Fulbright, uh, which is kind of a, a cultural exchange program through the State Department, and I got that. I'm going to be going to Africa. and... Uh, yeah thanks thanks a lot yeah so I'll be writing a book uh another book there uh, just about Africa. I used to live in Africa in the past, so now i'm I'm writing about that. But my third venture, my third long form work so when I come back to the states uh, my my the prospect of it is um I want to write a collection uh a collection of essays that each essay is a different story out of the mouth of a veteran that I know. I know so many at this point because I've been immersed in the community. I know so many veterans and with so many great accounts of their deployments overseas. What I wanted to do was to string together these accounts in one book, one volume and somehow make some kind of link, uh, I haven't figured that out yet, but kind of a, a linked group of essays. So they were braided. And um, I don't know if uh, anybody out there has ever read Voices from Chernobyl. This is a Nobel prize-winning book in literature. It's uh, by um, Svetlana Alexievich. Essentially, it was about the Chernobyl disaster, um, but it's, it's billed as a documentary collection and an oral history. And uh, so every time you, you read a part of the book, It's just essentially there's no narrator there's there there's no like overarching like third person narrator voice that's guiding the reader along. It goes immediately into the voice of somebody who happened to be there at the 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 nuclear disaster. So what I when I first read this this is something I read in graduate school. I thought you know I can see there being a voices from Chernobyl version of of the veteran story. Essentially, you have a book where it's a unified account of, let's say, uh, a battle or um, a, an entire uh, uh, war. Um, you know, I haven't I haven't worked that all out, all of that out yet. But essentially, it's kind of like an account, an overseas account, and then you have different people coming into that account, coming into that story, maybe in each chapter or each section, however it's partitioned. And, but you have all these voices without the author getting in the way. And so, with Svetlana Alexievich's story, m- much of what you see, you're getting the account directly from the person who was immediately at the event and without there kind of being any uh, author marginalia or uh, reliance on conventions, or um, it's just very free associative narrative. And so I see that form as being something I'd like to use in the future to tell the veteran's story, um, to uh, very much do something like, um, The Yellow Birds is not a good example. This is uh, uh, Kevin Powers' book. It was a novel, but a fantastic novel. Um, And Powers himself was a veteran, a machine gunner in Iraq. And so when he was writing this book of fiction, he was writing his own experiences into it. There's probably better, there's um, better stories or better renditions and formats to compare what I'd like to do to. But I read these excellent accounts that are very much seem autobiographical, and by the author's account, they are autobiographical. Or you go into something like redeplo- Redeployment by Phil Clay. They're all telling the veteran story, and they're doing it really well, and in different ways, and in different genres. Um, but I haven't seen something where it's just Kind of the veteran voice on the page. I do see that in terms of an oral history where it's a recorded oral history on various websites that is uh, currently in existence. Um, but I would like to, that would be my, my venture for the future to make something that's kind of a nonfiction account where the veteran just speaks directly onto the page with any kind of, without the medium of the narrator being there or the author and, um, and just letting the veteran story speak for itself.
0: That's really, really interesting. And, um, and, uh, you know, it's really marketable. (laughs) And here's why I say that. Because I think that's the very uh, two things here. I think that's the very reason why a lot of people get involved in the military. And that's uh, one of the reasons why I think people are always interested in stories uh, that are military related. And that's because there is still this allure of sitting around listening to grandpa listening to mom or dad whoever and they're, you know it is you're getting that story uh, firsthand their their experiences their their trials their tribulations and we have to imagine what it's like in our head uh, there's something still very powerful about that and i think that's really why a lot of people wind up in the military Uh, because they've heard these stories and there's the way they've heard them it makes them so romantic you know Uh, and and equally why some people will stop and just listen to these tales because like your experience sometimes you got to go and do these things to have these unique experiences and you know there's something so powerful and I think something that's probably in our DNA just from hearing them from one person and getting those details that you might not get otherwise
1: i completely agree the, the military is really kind of just a it's a group of storytellers getting together right. i mean that's part of that's probably part of the like the ethos that's part of the culture that's part of the therapy that's part of the um enjoyment you know when you have this uh brotherhood and sisterhood and uh and everybody sharing sitting around a fire kind of atmosphere community maybe not the literal fire but the figurative fire and they're They're uh, they've all gone through the same experience or similar experience and they're able to bring all their their accounts to bear that's uh, maybe somebody who's been on the outside wouldn't quite understand that wouldn't quite see that or envision it. But when you've been on the inside of that you can definitely see that that it is like when you are you're in a unit and you're with a bunch of dudes, uh, or you know um, male and female soldiers or whatever or, or airmen and Marines and uh and you're you're standing around you're talking it is a bunch of talkers it's a culture of talkers who absolutely. want to share their accounts and their
0: stories yeah absolutely absolutely and it, it's so funny uh you know so how some of those talkers emerge and some of the stories whether you know if they are true or not you will still listen <laughs> <laughs> yeah 100 percent. yeah <laughs> excellent so john what can we see in the near future from you what's on the horizon for you and what are you have any projects going on it, do you you mentioned something about the book are you going to do anything to support the book um
1: yeah well as soon as i get this uh book proposal from my current book uh under my belt and i i start petitioning to agents um then i leave for you know i'll be leaving for africa i'll be writing that that manuscript uh, then when I return, it's uh, kind of foremost on my mind to get back into a, the fellowship community. You know, the, the fellowship and um, uh, for a writer to make it today, you're kind of going from one fellowship to another, essentially some way that you can get paid in order to write and make uh, work happen. And so when I come back to the States, I'll be getting back into that, getting into whatever the right context is to write this book where it's uh essentially kind of a voices from chernobyl type of book uh emulating that style that oral history and uh and getting these stories and i I just want to mention the story that kind of was the catalyst for this i had a friend in my combat engineer unit that i mentioned earlier what what happened was that he told me a story about his unit being he was in a combat engineer unit in iraq or actually, I don't remember at this point, Iraq or Afghanistan. And he, I, he told me about how there was this proliferation of dogs, these wild dogs, and they would come out at night and they would howl. And uh, at one point, I guess guys in his unit, they were, they would shoot, they would shoot these dogs. And so they, uh, I remember him telling this story. This is kind of pure happenstance. He was telling me uh, casually at one point. And I, Took that story, and I was at grad in grad school at the time. And when it came time for the uh, all the grads to uh, the the graduating class to commit to kind of a, a graduate compendium of work, I wrote my only you know quote unquote fiction work. It was based off of his experience, so I call it fiction, but essentially it was nonfiction. I took his story and I put it into prose. And that was my um, collaboration into this uh, graduate compendium or anthology. And uh, so I still have that work to this day that was, uh, that was published in that, uh, this graduate anthology, and, uh, but it's his story. And so that was the catalyst for this idea that I have coming up when I uh, go to write this long form work that's uh, an oral history of
0: veterans experiences. Very interesting very interesting and before we wrap up i apologize i meant to ask you what what country in africa are you going to be going to
1: yeah i'm going to uh, senegal so um, i used to live okay. in africa when i was a kid i lived in liberia which is west africa yeah, and I
0: like uh, too what a oh, you did
1: yeah <laughs> super cool wow yeah. okay and um, this this never happens, by the way, where you're like, hey, I lived in Africa. And somebody else is like, oh, I lived in Africa, too. Like, like never happens.
0: So. Yeah, this <laughs> has only happened one other time to me because I, I also was in the Central African Republic. And I met a guy in Washington State, oddly enough. And somebody was like, oh, you need to talk to this guy. He was in the Peace Corps in the Central African Republic. This is the only to- other time that's happened to me uh, at, at, ever. Ever. Got yeah. it. Get very cool. Of, yeah. Very cool. So Senegal, very, very cool. You know, I was gonna I was gonna mention this might this might be this might be what you need for your writing. I mean, in my humble opinion, uh William S. Burroughs' best writing came from his time in Morocco. So I don't know. There are many people who would agree with you. Yeah. I've not read a
1: ton of boroughs, so I can't speak into that, but I definitely, uh, you know, it's definitely, you know, whenever you go out of your, um, your space and you go into another space, I can speak for that traveling to the various places. I I lived in Europe too. So living overseas in Europe and then traveling outside of uh, Belgium where I used to live, that was inspirational. So you're absolutely right. And get out of you know your home country. You go to another country, and you're there for a limited period. It is definitely there's something about that that it inspires you, it um, kind of enervates you, it challenges you, and uh, so yeah, I'm 100% looking
0: forward to that experience. Very cool, very cool. Well, John, thanks for being on the show. We definitely wish you the best of luck with all your adventures more adventures on the on the horizon for you and with your writing, with your work, uh, with the nonprofit, with the journal, everything. Thanks, thanks for being here and thanks for sharing with us today. Great. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute honor. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you've just heard our guest, John Ellis, and this has been another episode of Veterans in Academics. I'm your host, Dr. Luke McLeese. And... Until next time, take care. We thank all of you for listening. Veterans in Academics is an all-veteran production of Freedom and Prosperity Think Tank. Content creation is brought to you by Dr. Luke McCleese and Dr. Michael Bevers. Web development is by Osvaldo Vargas.